Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. I'm your host, Tavi Nasir, CEO of Tavi Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that now offers both virtual as well as in-person leadership keynotes and workshops on a variety of topics. As I've mentioned previously, as a result of the current COVID-19 pandemic, we've pivoted to doing virtual leadership keynotes, and it's been gratifying to hear back from attendees of these virtual talks how much they've gained from these sessions. So if you've been enjoying the leadership insights I've been sharing through this podcast and would like to learn more about my speaking work, please drop me a line through our contact form at tamfernasir.com. And while you're there, don't forget to check out my award-winning leadership blog as well. And now, let's get to my guest for this episode, Adrian Woolridge. I think there's an extraordinary story uh, behind all of this, that we're seeing the quality of government in Western countries, led by the United States and Great Britain, really declining, ossifying. Uh, And we're seeing the quality of government in Eastern countries, uh, led by Singapore, but including uh, China, really improving very dramatically. And I think that has enormous consequences for the balance of power in the world, uh, and also, of course, for business, which must operate within the context of uh, the public realm. It's quite understandable these days that many business leaders have their focus set on the latest developments around the COVID-19 virus, as this global pandemic is not only impacting the way we do business as an organization, but it's also impacting all of us in our everyday lives as well, which invariably impacts how your employees show up for work every day. Consequently, how the governments where you operate are handling this pandemic is vital to helping you plan and strategize how to go about achieving your organization's goals. Given the cost and lives lost and the growing risks of severe long-term economic hardships ahead, why are some countries failing to learn from the success stories of those who've eliminated this threat? And why should leaders everywhere be more concerned about the need for better governance in terms of how countries go about combating this disease? To help get some answers to these questions, I've invited Adrian Woolridge, political correspondent for The Economist, to the show to help us gain a better understanding for why leaders in both the private and public sectors have a vested interest in how well, or how badly, governments where they operate address this health crisis. Adrian co-authored with John Micklewaith, the editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News, their seventh book called The Wake-Up Call, Why the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weakness of the West and How to Fix It. Hi, Adrian. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Thank you for inviting me. So, Adrian, the focus of my podcast is on leadership and how to improve the way we lead. Of course, how successful we are at leadership depends not only how we approach that role, but on how we respond to changing conditions. After all, anyone can be successful when things are going well. The real test of how effective you are at leadership is how well you both navigate your organization through turbulent waters, but also keep your employees motivated and engaged in your organization's vision. Now, there's little question that COVID-19 has presented the world with an unprecedented challenge, in large part because of how interconnected we've become. And consequently, how a country and its government responds to this health crisis can create ripples that impact many other countries, be it in terms of trade or even in terms of tourism and families connecting. Now, for the past decade or so, we've seen the rise in power and influence of many organizations, and I think we still see that with companies like Facebook and Google. 
But in your book, you write how thanks to COVID-19, we're seeing now a resurgence of interest and focus on a country or region's governance. In fact, early on in your book, you write, the coronavirus has made government important again, not just powerful again, but also vital again. It matters enormously whether your country has a good health service and competent bureaucrats. The arrival of the virus was like an examination of state capacity. And that's why you call COVID-19 a wake-up call. Now, we're certainly seeing in certain parts of the world the devastation this virus is unleashing. But what's the real dangers countries in the Western world especially need to be paying attention to more? And for my listeners, what's the potential fallout for them if their governments disregard this wake-up call? Yeah, as, 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 as you've just read out, we regard this, um, this coronavirus as an examination which the whole world has taken at the same time. And the results of that examination are rather surprising because countries that we thought would do naturally do well in the examination, um, such as Britain, where I'm now sitting, or the United States next door to you, have actually done extremely badly. Countries that we thought wouldn't do particularly well um, have done really quite well. China which of course unleashed the virus in the first place, but nevertheless got its act together eventually. Uh, South Korea, Taiwan, a lot of countries in the Far East have done very well. Other countries um, have put in, a, such as Germany, have put in a middling performance. And I think there's a, an extraordinary story uh, behind all of this, that we're seeing the quality of government in Western countries, led by the United States and Great Britain, really declining, ossifying. Uh, and we're seeing the quality of government in Eastern countries, uh, led by Singapore, but including uh, China, really improving very dramatically. And I think that has enormous consequences for the balance of power in the world. Uh, and also, of course, for business, which must operate within you know, the context of uh, the public realm. You know, one thing I appreciate about your book, Adrian, is that you provide actually a context for some of those economic and social issues we're seeing in various Western countries, because as is the case when a scandal hits an organization, these events don't simply materialize out of thin air, but are a consequence of either years of poor decisions being made or leaders pursuing self-serving interests that lead an organization away from their agreed-upon purpose. In the case of explaining the differences we see in how some countries like South Korea that you just mentioned, Singapore and New Zealand, have been able to successfully limit the negative impacts of COVID-19, while others, as you've mentioned, have dramatically failed to get a proper handle on this pandemic, including, as you said, your country, UK and South of me, the United States. You point out that this comes down to how these successful countries not only view the role of government, but more importantly, how much they're investing to ensure they attract the best people to serve in government and public roles, such as in education and healthcare. And what I found interesting about this is that most of the discussions I see, at least here in Canada, around addressing the deficiency COVID-19 has shone a harsh light on, there is that admission that, yes, we need to hire more people in various public health and education sectors, but there's little discussion or focus on ensuring we get the most capable and best people. So if one of the things governments need to do is to attract and retain the best people and get rid of poor performers, to basically paraphrase what you just mentioned about the ossification of governments in the West, 
how can they convince the public to make that investment? Because it does cost a lot to hire, train, and then replace someone if they don't work out. And unlike in the private sector, this is on the public's dime, not on a company's. Let me answer that question in a rather roundabout way, but I'll get to, I'll, I'll get to the point eventually. Um, if you go back to the year 1600, um, the center of the world, really, in terms of the quality of its government, in terms of the vibrancy of its economy, is probably China. China has the largest city in the world, Peking. It has the, by far the best civil service. It's recruiting and training people. It's recruiting people from right across the country through the world's most rigorous system of written examinations. And at that time, the um, Western Europe, or Europe more generally, I mean, is a blood-soaked battlefield. It's an irrelevancy. Um, people are fighting each other. Kings don't really have enough power to keep control of the country. So it's, it's, it's a mess. And then gradually, over the years, um, the West begins to get out of this mess. First of all, it invents the nation state. Uh, that happens really in the 16th uh, and 17th centuries. And that means establishing uh, a, a monopoly of violence, uh, a monopoly of control over, uh, over the use of force. Uh, then in the late 18th and 19th centuries, it establishes the sort of liberal states in which people have rights, in which there's some sort of accountability of government to the to the people in the 20th century, it establishes the welfare state. So there's this constant pro process of innovation and invention of the state. All of that time in China, the state is ossifying. You could take exactly, if, if you studied uh, an examination book from 1500, you could actually do perfectly well in an examination in 1900. You've got the same questions, the same Confucian texts being. Um, examined over and over again. So an extraordinary period of atrophy in the East and progress in the West. And that continues to be the case right up, I think, till the 1960s. In the 1960s, you have um, the West really at its height, you know, putting a man on the moon, um, launching the great society, a great confidence about the power and role of the state. And in China, on the other hand, you have the Cultural Revolution, you millions of people dying of starvation, the country being torn apart, complete mess. Then something begins to happen. The, the East, starting with Singapore um, and then spreading later to China, starts really taking the, the state seriously, investing in state capacity. And the West begins to ossify, just as China ossified beforehand. You know, there's no real innovation. It's a begrudging thing. The state, state stays roughly the same as it has. Now, what's really driving this? Lots of things are driving this. One of the most important things is talent, um, is good people. The, the first thing that Lee Kuan Yew does when he tries to reinvent Singapore and take it, you know, make it a country fit for the, uh, the 20th and then the 21st century is to recruit really able people recruits the brightest people in the country. He pays them very well. He gives them very challenging dogs, jobs. He develops them. Then China begins to do the same thing. You know, there's many things wrong with China, but they have managed to recruit uh, a lot of really top-class people, many of them tra trained actually in engineering, into the state. At the same time, in the West, the very best people start fleeing the state, partly because the rewards for working in the state uh, are not very good in the sense that the private sector is paying much more, but also because there's no kudos 
in working for the state. There's this sort of culture that the state doesn't really matter, government doesn't matter, government's for losers, for second raters. So there's been a flight of talent towards the state in the East and a flight of talent away from the state in the West. And I think that more than anything else explains why Eastern countries have done so much better uh, than Western countries in, in, in coping with COVID. It's an index of how good their government is. And the most important thing determining the quality of government is the quality of the people going into it. Now your question, I've given a very long-winded answer, but your question was about how you attract the right sort of people into governments. And I think it's partly a matter of remuneration, a matter of pay. And what we have in the public sector is um, a ceiling on pay at the top. So you can't um, really earn as much as you would if you went into a private sector company. Many companies, uh, many countries have a sort of principle that you can't earn more than the president or you can't earn more than the prime minister. Um, so there's a ceiling at the top, but also at the bottom, you actually have people quite well paid relative to their, to their skills and abilities. A lot of people better paid than they would be in the private sector, certainly with better um, perks in terms of pensions, more solid pensions. Uh, so you have a, a, a squashed system of remuneration. You need the opposite of a squashed system of remuneration. But also there's the question of um, the ethos of the public sector. As I say, that the idea in the West is that this isn't really a great thing to be doing, that you'd be better off. The really, the, the, the really successful people are going to the private sector. So we need to change the pay structure to make it much more flexible, much more elongated. Um, but we also need to have a new ethos that actually working for the public sector, devoting yourself to the public good is um, a very honorable thing to do. And that's something that we had in the 1960s. You know, remember JFK in his inaugural uh, address to, to, the, to the nation saying, do not ask uh, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, a sort of public spirited ethos. So two really important things for improving the quality of people in the, in, in the public sector. I'm actually glad, Adrian, you brought up the example of the race to land a man on the moon, because I think that example, if we really look at the setup in both NASA as well as in the private companies, which they collaborated with, you can see that there was pretty much an equal sharing of talent in the sense that NASA, which is a government agency, had very talented engineers and scientists in their own right, and they were essentially saying we have some limitations in terms of resources as well as in terms of talent that we need to fill in, and that's why we're going to partner with businesses to help fill that. And in working in partnership, we can actually accomplish this, which was exactly what they did. And at the time, when people would say that they worked at NASA, there's a lot of these documentaries and movies that have demonstrated this, how when someone would say that they were working at NASA, the public would just go, wow, they'd be all like amazed and impressed by it. Whereas now, unless you're a space enthusiast, someone saying they work at NASA doesn't elicit that same sense of awe. And, you know, when I look at how in Europe and North American countries, when the coronavirus first hit our shores, very early on, there was that kind of similar partnership existing between business and governments. For example, here in Canada, a lot of the microbreweries pivoted in their production so that they went from making beer to actually following Health Canada guidelines on making hand sanitizer, which they would then hand out to various healthcare workers as well as to essential workers that were trying to keep the grocery stores open. 
to ensure that they were limiting the spread of uh, the virus. And so you could see here was a, an ability where the government needed this resource and business stepped in in partnership and said, here, we can help supply that and we'll work in conjunction to supply it where you say it's needed. So do you think that this is something that we need to be encouraging and maybe government needs to be communicating that we want to look for people who are interested in not only improving the way government operates, but also in finding these kinds of opportunities where partnerships can be created so we can not only address the COVID-19 crisis, but also look at how we can regain that relevancy that you're speaking about that governments are now starting to realize they should have. Absolutely. Well, what happened in this country um, was was very interesting in the sense that we started off with a lot of emphasis on partnership. The issue of the breweries um, uh, was was obviously important here as well as in, in your country. Um, we had the idea of um, getting ventilators made by the private sector, and uh, I think a number of car companies stepped in there. But then that partnership sort of broke down; didn't work very well. Uh, after a while, there was an initial surge of enthusiasm, uh, and then um, a lot of barriers were encountered. And one of the reasons for this, I think, was that sections of the public se sector were very monopolistic in their thinking about things. So there was something called an organisation called Public Health England, which insisted basically that all tests should be made in-house. They wouldn't buy in tests from the private sector or bring them in from universities. They wanted their own test done in their own way. And this, of course, <laughs> slowed down the supply of tests um, and it was a ridiculous sort of monopoly. Also, Public Health England later said they had to develop the apps. They wouldn't bring in apps from Google um, or any private sector organisation. They needed to, it needed to be something invented and made by Public Sector England. So there is an element within the public sector that's very resistant to partnership and is very monopoly-minded. We need to break that down. Of course we do, because, you know, a lot of the expertise that we're, we're, we're going to need, particularly in technology, resides in the private sector now. It doesn't reside in the public sector. So the only way you can advance is through, uh, through partnership. So um, we need, and when we're talking about partnership, we also have the problem of how well you can manage that partnership, because obviously private sector organisations are profit-making entities. They will try and get the best deal possible. And unless you have people in the, private in the public sector who are capable of managing those relationships and capable of striking a hard bargain you can have public sector money being being wasted and badly used i'm also very glad you mentioned the issue of nasa um, for two reasons one is that nasa was an elite organization within the public sector everybody took their hat off to it everybody was thrilled by nasa and what we've tended to have is a sort of squeezing of quality in the, in the public sector, particularly in Britain and, 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 and the United States, a sort of public sector egalitarianism. There aren't that many elements in the public sector that everybody goes, wow, those are really great people. I'd really want, like to be one of those. Um, you know, that sort of elitism is now um, focused on the private sector. And I'd like to have, you know, much more sense that the very brightest and very best people will go into the public sector because the public sector is where it's at, where they've got the best people. So that sense of elitism, that sense of belonging to a, a, a very exclusive club, I think is, 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 is very important. Uh, and the other reason I'm glad you mentioned NASA is that we have 
Um, the right-hand man of our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is a man called Dominic Cummings. Um, and he is absolutely obsessed by NASA. Um, and he wants to have uh, the ethos of NASA, the sort of um, the innovative um, elitist spirit of NASA. And he's all, also, he's now building a sort of a prime minister's office, um, which has screens, which has real-time information, which has open-plan seating rather than the rather traditional seating that it has, very much on a sort of uh, NASA sort of um, uh, model. So it's, NASA's now fashionable again in, in, at the heart of uh, British government, which is, I think, rather interesting. And it's interesting that we're talking about technology here because that's actually something else I wanted to discuss with you because it is another point you bring up for what this COVID-19 wake-up call should elicit, which is a greater investment in technology by government, whether that's in building high-speed internet networks the same way they build roads and highways, to creating apps that allow citizens to conduct their business with different government agencies. And again, there are examples out there of countries creating various digital measures to help them better manage their COVID-19 response. I particularly like the one you write about in how in Shanghai, each subway car has its own QR code that users scan when they enter the car. So if someone who was on that car tests positive for COVID-19, the government knows who to contact to self-isolate. And yet we see here in the West, and you just mentioned it now, a lot of pushback citing privacy concerns. For example, again, here in Canada, our government launched their own COVID-19 app. They did it independently of Google or any other of those high-tech companies to help notify people if they've recently been in contact with someone who's now tested positive for COVID-19. Yet, despite assurances from the Canadian government, as well as privacy advocates, that there are no privacy issues from the app, the app hasn't gained wide adoption. And at the same time, Facebook keeps getting caught collecting data that its users hadn't agreed to, and yet people keep using their platform. So given how companies are able to get consumers to buy in on giving up their data in exchange for some service or perceived benefit, what should governments be doing to get more participation in such initiatives, considering the numerous cited benefits from epidemiologists that doing this kind of tracing will help reduce the spread of this virus and consequently limit the economic and social fallout that comes from having to put various restrictions in place. It's quite extraordinary that people are willing to, to give up their privacy information, vital information about themselves uh, in order to, to, to look at pictures of fluffy cats um, yes. or, or, or beautiful dogs. I, I'm a dog person, not a cat person, but they're not willing to give up their information to save their own lives or more importantly, to save the lives of other people. Um, I think that we have to be um, willing to give up that data. I think that the most important thing is preserving life. Uh, and if, um, if preserving life means redrawing the boundaries, at least you know, temporarily, for, uh, b b between individual rights and collective obligations, then I think we have to move towards collective obligations. And I think people are being selfish because it's not just about preserving their own life. It's about preserving the lives of other people. If you're a healthy young person, you're not going to die from this thing. But if you're an older person, you've got health problems, then you are going to die about it. So I think that you need that the government needs to appeal to a sense of altruism. But also, I think that we need to introduce the element of accountability in the sense that um, I think I'm willing to give up information about myself, um, providing I'm assured that the government is accountable um, for the use of that information, that there is a proper oversight through the parliamentary system, through vigorous 
um, MPs, but also select committees, uh, committees of inquiry, which are constantly watching over the government. So I think the government has to put more emphasis into setting up the right sort of structures of accountability and also to persuading people that there are the right sorts of structures to accountability. So, you know, informing them that their information will not be used by suspicious people, that their information will only be used during the crisis, it won't be kept perpetually. So accountability, I'd say, is part of the answer. Appealing to people's better natures in terms of altruism is, is part of the answer. But we can't get all the way because there is a sort of paranoia out there. I mean, I'm astonished by the number of people who say that they will not take a vaccine. Um, you know, 20% of the population in, in, in many Western countries say they won't, won't take a vaccine. There is a sort of distemper about government, uh, particularly uh, about government in the United States, where this is its worst, but also in Britain. Uh, and I think one of the, the overwhelming things we need to do is reclaim trust in government. And I think part of reclaiming trust in government means getting better government, i.e. getting better people. I mean, this is a work of, of a decade or, or, or of generation to restore trust in government. But until we've done that, we are going to unfortunately have people terrified of giving their information to their democratically elected leaders. Adrian, you once again given me the perfect segue to another topic I wanted to discuss with you based off of your book, and that is how this current global pandemic is becoming yet another divisive issue in many Western countries, where there's this split, as you touched on, between people who feel a moral and civic duty to protect their fellow citizens and wear a mask to help limit the spread of this virus, and those who seem to think wearing a mask is somehow infringing on their liberties. And typically, these are people who believe this is all a hoax. Now, we hope we'll have a viable vaccine sooner than later, and we'll have to see if enough people are going to be willing to take it. But even after we've developed a cure for this virus, the fact is that this social division we're seeing in many Western countries will still be present and will simply shift to another lightning rod issue. In Canada, we've been sharing a phrase since the start of this pandemic, we're all in this together, as a reminder that we all have to do our part to both protect our neighbors, but to also help our healthcare workers who are putting their own well-being on the line, taking care of those who've fallen gravely ill with the virus. So how, as we like to say, my family, do we hit the reset button so we can not only see once again inter-country collaboration and not competition for resources like PBE and vaccine access, but also more solidarity and unity amongst the country's general population as well? Great question. I think that um, in Britain, uh, what you saw at the, at the start of uh, this pandemic was a great outpouring of civic uh, solidarity. You know, people were banging pots and pans or cheering for the National Health Service. Uh, they were relatively quick to lock down and willing to lock down. Um, and obviously, as you said, you, you have the slogan, we're all, all in this together, which, of course, is exactly right. So the majority of people at first were willing to, 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 to put civic responsibility uh, above uh, themselves. But patience is, is wearing thin and patience is, is, is wearing down, I think. And the number of people who believe very bizarre things um, and won't um, put on masks or believe that, 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 that there is an exaggeration, that there isn't really COVID, uh, that it's not really that dangerous, is growing. And they're very vigorous. They're very, very, very shouty uh, on the internet. And now they've even been joined, I believe, today by Van Morrison, who's just released a sing song denouncing 
the wearing of, 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 of masks. Um, but I think we just have to keep um, reasserting these fundamental things that, 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 that you as an individual are responsible for other individuals. That if you go around with a mask, if you breathe in other people's faces, you are contributing to the spread of an airborne disease which can kill people who are older and who are vulnerable. And the government has to keep um, banging the drum on this issue. Unfortunately, um, particularly in the United States, but also in Britain, um, there are very, very deep social and cultural divisions. You know, we've just had the Brexit um, revolution and uh, the war over Brexit. Uh, America has perpetually at war now over over Trump and Trump-like issues. Um, and I think, you know, those divisions are so deep now that it's going to be very, very, very hard for any government to get um, a fair hearing from every side if it tries to do the, the right and responsible thing. Adrian, near the end of your book, you actually detail a list of things political leaders should do to not only better manage the COVID-19 crisis, but also set the stage for reinvigorating a government's role and influence. I know we've touched on a few, and certainly we're seeing a number of social issues gaining increasing prominence, as you've just mentioned, because those social cracks have turned into these unavoidable chasms. But seeing the direction that many countries are currently heading, What's that one critical measure you think government leaders need to get on top of if their country is to heed the wake-up call COVID-19 has created? I think the most important thing for government is to be competent. Uh, And one reason that people are skeptical about government is that government has quite often not been competent. If you look at um, the Germans and their reaction to Angela Merkel, they basically trust her now because they were very fast off the mark and they've been very consistently doing sensible things in, in Germany. In Britain and the United States, the government's been all over the place. It's said contradictory things. It's been slow on almost every front, slow to lock down, slow to tell people to wear masks, slow to acquire and distribute PPE, slow to do testing and tracing. So government needs desperately is to learn from its mistakes in the first wave uh, and be faster and be more, more consistent. But unfortunately, it's burnt Uh, a lot of its capital by its slowness in the first place. One of the things that's most remarkable to me is the issue of, you know, we talk about learning organizations, um, is how slow Western governments in general were to learn from what was happening in the Far East. Um, You know, we saw what was happening in China. We saw how devastating this disease was, is. uh, We saw sensible ways of dealing with it. We saw countries that succeeded as, as, as South Korea, Taiwan, and eventually China did in managing the disease, we didn't imitate them. We didn't mandate or encourage the wearing of masks. We didn't close down airports. We didn't track and isolate people. We just meandered along month upon month upon month. And that reveals, I think, an extraordinary level of arrogance, uh, ignorance, and introversion uh, on the part of Western governments. They didn't think there was anything they could learn from, from, from the Far East. And they didn't really, they weren't in learning mode. So I've become very uh, worried about the capacity of government to uh, adjust to a changing world. But it, centrally, it needs to learn from its, its previous mistakes and, um, and put competence above everything else. Adrian, I want to thank you for coming on my show to discuss this. Admittedly, 
in my sphere, the focus around COVID-19 tends to be on crisis management and how leaders are, to quote a rock classic, riding the storm out, waiting for the thaw out. But the truth is we're all reliant on how our governments, both regionally and federally, respond to this crisis of what measures will be necessary and when to both minimize the risk spread and impact of this pandemic on our communities and our businesses. And as we're seeing, some government leaders like New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern are earning praise within their country and around the world for how well they're leading their country through this global pandemic while others are facing growing criticism for lacking a clear plan of action for not only how to combat COVID-19, but to restart the economy. So I think as much as we need to be concerned about the impact COVID-19 is having on our organization, we also need to build on what you've just said, have clarity and understanding of the role we should want and expect our governments to play to ensure we have the environment means to do the work we need to do. And I really appreciate your helping to shine a light to help us move past the typical political lenses we use to look at government, to appreciate what changes we need to see to ensure we not only beat this pandemic, but do so in a way that protects our democratic institutions and quality of life as well. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned at the start of today's episode, Adrian's book, The Wake Up Call, is the seventh book he's co-written with the editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News, John Micklewaith. It's a very quick read on a subject which, as I said at the start, is without question on the minds of leaders everywhere and with good reason. In fact, I've given a few keynotes in Europe and Canada recently that focused on the challenges and opportunities brought forth by COVID-19. So if you've been enjoying the insights and ideas being shared here on my podcast and would be interested in having me share them with your employees by addressing the specific issues that are top of mind for you and your organization, visit my website at tavernasir.com and fill out our contact form so we can start that discussion. And if you've been enjoying my leadership podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could help support the show by helping to spread the word about this podcast. The easiest way to do this is to simply share a link to my show's podcast page at tavernasier.com slash LBC. Alternatively, you could share a link to our show from the various podcast platforms people use to listen to podcasts. You could find us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Deezer, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Podcasts, and so many others. And if you have been sharing my show with your network, I want to extend to you my heartfelt thanks and appreciation. And with that, I'm Tavern Nasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Leadership Biz Cafe.